morning, if you have a Bible, I invite you to take it up and turn with me to the book of Proverbs, uh, Proverbs chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, there is a book in the pew back in front of you, and you can uh, take one of those, and you can find this reading on page 514, or of course, you can go to our Grove Church app, you click on the Bible tab, and you can find Proverbs chapter 5. If you've not been with us, or if you've been with, if you're visiting with us this morning, then you'll want to know that we're in a series that we call Wislet 101, Wisdom Literature 101, the basic foundational truths of the wisdom that comes only from heaven. Because the premise, of course, is that none of us want to live foolish lives. None of us want to look back on our lives and say we were stupid, but rather we want to be wise. We want to be insightful in the way in which we deal with our everyday lives. And so we've come to the book of Proverbs, uh, a book of wisdom literature, the wisdom that comes from heaven. The theme of of our series, of our studies, if you like, or the theme of the class, if you would like to put it that way, carry the metaphor, is really this. That God created you, God made you, that God loves you, he's for you, that he wants to guide you so that you can be wise. God made you. He created all things, which includes humanity, which includes you. He made you. He knows what's best for you, right? Because he made you. He loves you. He is for you, most of all, in his son, Jesus Christ, who lived the perfect life we couldn't live, died a sacrificial death on the cross, was raised again on the third day in order that we might have relationship with God. He's like, I did this for you because I am for you. And therefore, he says, now let me guide you so that you can live a wise life. Life. And so each week we've been taking a different topic that's, that's dealt with in the book of Proverbs and we've been looking at it, kind of picking it up and turning it around and kind of examining it. And this week we will be actually be, um, we'll be looking at the topic of sex. And you say, well, why would we do something like that? Don't worry, I'm not going to deal with anatomy. It's not health class. But I was struck by, I have been struck by, as I'm sure you have, in the wake of Bill O'Reilly or Harvey Weinstein or Steen. And if you follow on Twitter, the hashtag MeToo, I was struck by on the, the, the number of people, the number of people, a uh, number of women who have found themselves to be dealing with or uh, sexual abuse. And then I was driving in my car this, this past week, heading to a lunch appointment, and I heard this piece on the radio about um, the, how rampant this happens, how prevalent this is in, in the Minnesota Theater District, in the Minnesota Theater. Not just directors, but fellow actors to one another. And you, you've just seen this, directors and comedians and CEOs and coaches and actors and politicians and pastors. It's hard to imagine it's hard to imagine a profession that hasn't been touched by this. It's, it's staggering. And so I thought it wise for us to be able to see, especially when we have people in, our, in the mainstream of conversation now, people using the story of Mary and Joseph in order to try to somehow defend inappropriate behavior. And we need to look at what the Bible has to say about these things if we're gonna have the wisdom that comes from heaven. So I'd like to do it in this way. 
I'd like to look at three societal views of sex. These are, the, these are narratives that are out in culture. I'd like to look at the Christian view of sex. And then I'd like to look at the wisdom that comes from Proverbs chapter 5. So first, three societal views of sex. First is this. The first view that's commonplace in our culture and in our society is that sex is a natural appetite. Sex is a natural appetite. So in this view, uh, sex is viewed as similar to any other bodily activity, such as eating or sleeping. When you feel like doing it, you do it. You should do it. Just be careful not to overdo it, as with all appetites. It's, it's just a thing that happens to humanity. That's what humans do. So this thinking equals this sort of result, which is that sex is all right as long as it's safe. Like, it's just an appetite. Just to demystify it. It's just something that we do. So when you feel like doing it, you do it, but you don't overdo it because, you know, you don't want to indulge too much of any appetite. This is something where you might encounter a message in public school sex education. And it may sound, sound something like, we should understand the natural biological sex drive. We realize that we need to be careful with sexual activity because it can have negative consequences. Therefore, we must master it. We must master it like any other skill and be responsible. There's this... This is one of, the, one of the societal or cultural narratives that we hear surrounding sex. The second is this, that sex is an animal passion. That sex is an animal passion. This view holds that the spirit, the invisible things, the heart, the person is, is the most important part and that the physical body is not is less important and so kind of what we do with it, it just is sort of, so isn't as, poor, as, isn't as important. The, the, these important and civilized things are the things that are within, the things that are in our hearts, what we do with our bodies. You know, so it's important in the sense that it, get, it makes, it, it's, it propagates the human race. But other than that, you, you don't want to do it outside of marriage because it's, it's kind of a dirty thing and it's something that really you only need to do only when for the higher good of actually having children. So, it's, so sex is actually viewed as a dirty thing or as a necessary evil and, and tainted in some way. It's just, so this view, um, believe it or not, has actually been pretty well connected to the church historically. That what really matters is someone's spirit. What really matters is their soul. And that sex is something that, I mean, God put it because we have to, have, we have to be fruitful and multiply. And it's, but... Or it's pretty common in youth group, maybe like mine, where it's like, you don't do it, don't do it, don't do it until you save it for the one you love. <laughs> so wait till, wait till you get married. Wait till, and so the feeling is that it's a taboo. It's, 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 wouldn't say it that way, but that's really how it comes across. And a third way, and this is... Uh, a way that I think has gained significant momentum in recent years is sex as creative expression. Sex as creative expression. Sex, therefore, becomes a critical way for me to be able to express myself, to be myself, and to find myself. 
that, that, so it starts with this idea that what's actually inside of me is actually a good, what's my, my desires and my, are, are pure, and, and, and what I need to do is to be the most authentic expression of myself, and that comes out in a whole variety of ways, including our sexual, the way in which we view sex. Behind this way of thinking is the notion that, human, that the humans and their natural state are brimming with goodness and creativity. And so goodness can be achieved when we liberate the basic primal instincts that we have, which, which, and then allow ourselves to be our purer selves. And so we say, well, I just need to find myself, so I'm expressing myself creatively through my, through my sexual encounters. What makes sex right or wrong in this view is how closely your sexual actions align with who you feel is your true self. How, how closely aligned am I with who I feel myself to truly be? So these are uh, sort of the cultural narratives that are th at least three, there may be more, but there's at least three primary cultural narratives about sex in our culture. What is the Christian view? What does the Bible have to say about sex? Well, first is this, that sex is good. That God, it, that sex was God's idea. God made you, right? God, God made you, and so he knows this is his idea. It was God's idea. It wasn't like God created human beings and then looked down one day and said, what, what are they doing? That's not, that's not how it works. It was all God's idea. It was all his plan, not just, not just to propagate the human race, but to actually image himself, to show himself to the world through marriage. Because a marriage is a man and a woman who are, who are, are they're painting a picture of Christ and the church. And this is a part of that. This was God's idea. This was all a part of his plan. Is sex is designed by God to be reserved for marriage. And think about it this way. If you, if you go to the, if you go in this book, but if you also go to Song of Solomon, I mean, the Bible is bold-faced in its in, encouragement of pleasure in this particular area. I mean, just go and just read for your, for, well, for your own pleasure, I swear, or for your own leisure. That's your... Think about this that what it must be for, what does it say about creator God that he created our bodies in such a way that there are bits and pieces and parts of our body that are designed just for pleasure, just for your pleasure and for the pleasure of your spouse? What does it say about our creator God and what he wanted for those who are his children, those who are a part of his creation? It didn't surprise God. This is a good thing. It was all a part of his plan. It's all a part of his design. It's for him. Second is this, that our desires are often broken. As opposed to the idea that our desires, our, our innate desires and, and, and longings are actually for, come from a, a pure place. The, opposite, the, the scriptures actually teach something quite opposite. It's the, the, the doctrine of total depravity that, every, that we're not, you're not the worst person that you could possibly be, but every single part of your body is tainted by sin. Every, every single part of your being is somehow affected by the fall and affected by sin. Many of our desires are misguided. 
we often desire things that are not best for us, that are not good for us, that are not healthy for us. The Bible teaches us that sexual desires are, are often broken and usually idolatrous, and all by themselves, our sexual desires are unreliable guides for living. Unreliable guides. Let me remind you, Romans chapter 1, you, you, you may remember this, where Paul is writing to the church in Rome, and he's talking to this church, and he says this in Romans chapter 1, verse 21. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their f foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they, were, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human being, birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over to their, in their sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity and for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They have exchanged the truth about God for a lie and have worshipped and served created things rather than creator who is forever praised. Amen. Therefore, God gave them over to their sinful, desi the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity and the degrading of their bodies with one another. God gave them over to their desires. And their desires were misguided into sexual immorality and to the degrading of one another's bodies. Hashtag Me Too all, oh, that, that, that took over Twitter a few weeks ago is about women who are expressing and who, because they've experienced the degradation of their bodies because of selfish, misguided sexual desires by powerful men. When, because why? Because we have unreliable, our, our desires are unreliable, they are broken. Our sexual desires, left to themselves, are not a reliable guide because they're often misguided. This is what the scriptures teach. Thirdly, and finally, that sex, so sex is good, sex is, and our desires are broken, and sex is not about you. The Bible teaches that love and sex are not primarily for individual happiness and self-discovery and self-fulfillment. That it's not primarily about you. The Bible views sex not primarily as self-fulfillment, but as a way to know Christ and to further his kingdom or to build his kingdom. The sex you have or don't have is an indication of your giving yourself to God. How you deal with these things is an indication of where your heart is before God. Biblical sex is, pr is primarily about you giving yourself to God and you giving yourself to your spouse or you giving yourself to God and not giving yourself to anyone else. Sex is not your right. Sex is not your identity. Sex is not you finding yourself or your place of experimentation. Biblical sex is not about finding yourself. Biblical sex is about giving yourself. When I do a premarital counseling, I'll often, um, when I meet with a couple, and we, we have to talk about this sort of thing because it's the most awkward part of the discussion always, at least for them, not for me. Um, just, just the way it goes. Eventually, you just get used to talking about really awkward things in front of people like you right now. <laughs> just a part of the role. 
They don't teach you that in seminary, by the way. They don't tell you that this is part of the deal, just in case you were wondering. But I, I had a conversation with him. I say, you know, one of the, one of the primary principles of marriage is, comes from Philippians chapter 2, where Paul says that you are to consider others better than yourself. When you make your vows, when you make your vows, what you're vowing to do is to consider that person better than yourself. It's what you're doing. And it applies also to the relationship, the physical relationship between husband and wife. It's not about you going into the marriage saying, these are my demands to be met, but it's about you going into the marriage saying, I am in this particular way, considering you better than myself. This is, a, this is, the, this is one of the principles that apply, that sex in the Bible is not really about you. It's about you giving yourself to your spouse, giving yourself because you've given yourself to Christ and because the way in which you love one another is painting a picture of him. Do you understand that? You're painting a picture of Christ for your spouse by the way that you serve him or her. So how can we live wise? What is the wisdom from Proverbs 5 with regards to these things in the last few minutes we have together? Proverbs 5, let me just begin, let me just read the first few verses. Verse 1, my son, pay attention to my wisdom, turn your ear to my words of insight, that you may maintain discretion and your lips may preserve knowledge. For the lips of the adulterous woman drip honey and her speech is smoother than oil. Let's just pause there. So we have um, parents, father, son, mother, son, parents speaking to their son. So it's coming from uh, uh, advice from parents to a son. So understand that's the context, but it applies to all of us here. The first principle that we see here in verse 3 is that sexual sin is appealing. If we are going to live the wise life that, that God has called us to live, if we are going to give, live wisely, then the first thing we need to understand is that sexual sin, no matter your age, no matter where you are, that sexual sin is appealing. It's appealing to all of us. For the lips of the adulterous woman or the forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. There's an allure that will pull us away from a biblical view of sex. There's, a, there's an enticement that will pull us away from wanting to be self-giving. The allure of misguided sexual desires is appealing and it's all around us. The message continues, is to, the message that we get is to follow our desires, to pursue our desires, especially because you need to express yourself in this way. You need to get, you need to follow your, your desires need to be met. After all, it's just a natural thing. Go and have your, to have your desires met. Do you see how radically different this, the understanding, the underpinnings for a biblical view of sex are than the, than the, than the narratives that flow out into, our country, out into our culture? We need to understand that there is an allure and the allure is real. It's on our TV screens, it's on our radios, it's in the songs that we listen to. It's always constantly calling for us to follow our desires. And it's appealing and it's consistent and it's persistent in each of our lives. Because, you know, I know the person who is my spouse, and I know all of the issues that are there, but the, but the man at the office or at the club or at the school 
is exciting and is attractive and always is telling me how wonderful I am and it's alluring. The rampant use of pornography for both men and women, that is, that is alluring. That is continuing to pull people towards it and trap people in it. The desire to give ourselves to someone who is outside of the marriage context. It's all there. It's all consistent. And it's very real. So the first thing we need to recognize if we're going to be wise is that, is that we just need to just, let's not just pretend that it's not real and that somehow we, it's not enticing to us. Because it is. Well, where does it go? Verse 4. But in the end, she is bitter as gall, sharp as a double-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps lead straight to the grave. She gives no thought to the way of life. Her paths wander aimlessly, but she does not know it. That sexual sin, secondly, if we are going to live a wise life, we need to recognize that sexual sin is appealing. We need to recognize that sexual sin will destroy you. It will destroy you. Like we don't want to believe that it'll destroy us. Here he says, look, here's what happens if we follow, if we allow the why, if we allow the sweet talk to actually enter into our ears, if we allow this to happen, then she is going down to the grave. That's she's a double-edged sword. She's bitter. This is where this is heading. This is, she gives no care or concern to the way of health, to the way of life, to the whole life that we're called to. She has no concern for that. All of these things that are appealing, all of these things that are enticing, all they lead to is bitterness and to brokenness and pain and destruction, not to health and to life. They're not there. It will end in bitterness and pain and death. Pornography will ruin your mind. Pornography will ruin your marriage. And if you think you can just sort of play around with it for a while and it won't have that, no, this is where it leads. Yes, there is a temporary release. Yes, there is a temporary pleasure. Yes, there is a temporary indulgence and it does feel good for a short while. But ultimately, if you are going to live the wise life, the wisdom of the sages, the wisdom that comes from heaven says, listen, listen to me, son. This is where it always goes. This is where it always goes. Sex outside of marriage will lead to pain and bitterness and scars. The wisdom of the world says, live and learn. Right? How else are we going to know if we don't live and learn? But Solomon says, listen to me, learn, listen to me, learn, and then go live. You don't have to have the scars. You don't have to have the broken. There are people, if we gave you an opportunity now to be able to, there are people in this room who would gladly stand up and say, don't be where I am because I lived and I learned. And if I can tell you now, don't listen to the words of the sage. Learn now before you go live, before you do these things, before the brokenness and pain and scars are there. I 
want to be very clear and I, and I also want to be very careful because I know that some of you are here and you come into this space and you come into this particular topic and it brings with it a whole bunch of baggage a whole bunch of baggage that you didn't create a whole bunch of baggage that wasn't your fault and you have to carry that with you because of, of other people who have done it to you other people who decided that they wanted because to pursue their own desires, to pursue their own urges, to follow after, their, use their own power and position in order to be able to impose their will upon you. And I want, you to, I want, to, I want to be very clear and say that it's not your fault. Yes, you carry the scars. Yes, you carry the baggage. Yes, that's all true. And yet it's not your fault. So when, when we talk about uh, these things, I understand the weight and burden. I, I want to empathize. Let me say that. Because I've never been in, in your place or in your shoes. But I also want you to know that in Christ is one who has knows what it is to be rejected, who knows what it is to, to, to have, been, have, have people that you trusted turn on them, turn on him. And in him and only in him is their hope and is their healing for, the, for every baggage that we carry in life so what are we to do how are we to what are we to recognize we we want to recognize the the wisdom that comes from heaven we want to live wisely and first it's understanding the allure of sexual sin we recognize that where it always leads thirdly then what are we to do we are to flee sexual sin verses seven and eight now then my sons listen to me do not turn aside from what I say. Keep, the path, keep, uh, keep to a path far from her. Do not go near her door, the door of her house. Left to ourselves, our desires are not a wise guide. Therefore, biblical wisdom says that we are to flee our desires. We are to flee from our desires. So like, like Joseph, if you remember the story when he was with Potiphar, his boss's wife, and she made an advance, what does he do? He, he gets up and he runs and he even leaves his tunic there to be able to get out of the way. You see, because what happens is at least we get a thought that pops into our mind. And then what do we do with the thought? We have a thought that pops into our mind and then our imagination that can lead to a daydream, right? Where we have a thought that then becomes to, oh, we start to, we start to think about these. We start to imagine, which then leads to a temptation where an imagination becomes, we, we allow it the opportunity to, to tempt us. And then the temptation then gives way to a desire and a desire gives way to an action, which is sin. We have a thought that we allow time in our imagination, which turns into temptation, which turns into desire, which turns into sin. And we need to run away. We must not give sin a foothold. We have to recognize that the enemy is very real and the enemy desires to have you. He is crouching at the door and is waiting for us. That we must run, we must flee from we must not give the evil one a foothold. Proverbs chapter 6, verses 27 and 28. Can a man scoop fire into his lap without his clothes being burned? 
Can a man walk on hot coals without his feet being scorched? You say, well, yeah, I've seen it on TV. No, that's not what he's talking about. You get the point. Really? You think you can mess around with this? You really think you can play fast and loose? You really think you're the one guy who isn't going to get pulled into pornography and get addicted? You're the guy. Great, nice to meet you. You're not. You think you're the couple that can introduce pornography because somehow it's not going to destroy your physical affection to one another by putting it into your marriage? You, you think you're the... He's saying, look, you can't bring these things onto your lap and expect to have a different result. If you bring it, you're going to get burned. My, my, my wife's cousin actually has a company called the Ohio Burn Unit. They're actually in the world record for having the most amount of people on fire at one time. Pretty crazy. And not long ago, we received a call that he was in the hospital because he got burned. Shocker. Because when you mess with fire, you get burned. Guys, this is, it's, it's, it, it's the wisdom that comes from heaven. We can't be deceived. Don't allow ourselves to be deceived in thinking that we can just mess around with it. That somehow that other person is a, is a better lover, is a better spouse, is a better whatever than the one that I have, the one that God has actually given me. That's deception, that the grass is somehow greener. We must not allow ourselves to have those imaginations that lead that lead us down into temptations and to desires and ultimately to sin that is destructive and will lead to pain. Well, after we flee, then what are we, what is, what is the scriptures tell us here? What are we to do? But rather the position is that we should do is what we should do is we ought to rejoice in your position. You need to rejoice in your position. Proverbs 5 verses 16 through 18. Drink water from your own cistern, running through, running water from your own well. Should your springs overflow in the streets, your streams of water in the public squares, let them be yours alone, never to be shared with strangers. May your fountain be blessed, and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth. Drink water from your own cistern, running water from your own well. Pay attention, keep your eyes on what's yours, what God has given to you. If you are single in the room this morning, if you're here and you are unmarried, I want to just, I, I want to I speak to you for a moment because you can come to a talk like this and it can be particularly difficult and, and can be particularly challenging. And, and I just want to address this for a moment because um, in our culture, for you who are unmarried or currently unmarried. The, the narrative is, if you're not having sex, you're not normal. Like, this is what normal people do, and you're not doing that? Like, that's so not normal. And if you're not having sex, there must be, or if you're not having sex, there must be something wrong with you as, a, as an unmarried person. And I'm afraid that even in the church, for those who are unmarried or those who are, are single, if you don't have a family, somehow you're not normal. Or if you don't have a spouse, somehow that it, it, there's no place for you here. I, I... There's a pastor. He's a single man. He's the pastor of a church called the Emmanuel City Center. His name is Ed Shaw. 
And this is what he says. He's a, he's a single man. says, sometimes the implication is almost that I'm not quite human because I have not yet experienced such a basic human right as the sexual experience. That's how he feels sometimes. That's how people look at him. Thomas Schmidt says this, it is only an aberration in our own sorry generation to equate the absence of sexual gratification with the absence of full personhood, the denial of being, or the deprivation of joy. Right? It's like, it's like he says, it's only our sorry generation that equates the absence of sexual gratification. If you're not having sex, if you're, not, you're choosing not to, that somehow you're a lesser of a person, that somehow you, you, you're, you have, you're lesser of a being, or somehow you can't possibly have joy in life. It's just not true, he says. Just to remind you, Jesus was single. Paul, the apostle, was single. Jesus was the only perfect person to ever walk the face of the earth, and he was never married. He was single. For, for your afternoon reading in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul gives the most strong argument, I think, in the scriptures for, the, for, 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 for being single. Go read it. He says, I, I desire for you to be like me. But, gosh, if you're, if you're burning for sexual desire, then you can get married, and it's not a sin. You know, that's what he says. He's like, but, I, but, I, but, but by the way, if you get married, it's going to be hard because you have to deal with your wife's stuff. And if you're a husband, I mean, if you're a wife, then you have to deal with your husband's stuff. It's hard. Be single because then I can focus on Jesus. That's what he says. I, I paraphrased a little. But he goes, no, this... Ed Shaw continues... We also need to remind ourselves that our sexualities can be valued by self-control as much as engaging in sex. Love is not just communicated by the sex we ha one has, but also by the sex one hasn't had. I'm showing God that I love him by not engaging. I'm showing the love that I have for Christ that I've given myself to him by not pursuing someone else. He continues... So life without sex for the Christian should never involve an unhealthy repression or denial of their sexuality, any attempt to act as if it doesn't exist. It is God's given gift to be valued and expressed in ways that he has outlined, and that, that, means, lots, that means lots of sex for some and none for others. But both are different ways of appreciating the incredible part of what it is to be human, be created in the image of God. So if you're single this morning, I hope that you understand the value that the scriptures have, the value that God has, and the calling for continually having this, this part of your life dedicated to Christ. And if you're married, rejoice in the spouse of your youth. This does not mean rejoice in your, the younger spouse, your spouse when she was younger or he was younger, right? You know, it doesn't mean that. Like, let's look at the old pictures. Yeah, you look good. You used to look good. I remember that day. It's not what he's saying. What he is saying is, I've given you a spouse, and I want you to find all of your sexual fantasy, fulfillment, and enjoyment in the one person that I have sovereignly provided for you to enjoy life with. 
the, the Christian sexual ethic is not difficult. Purity before marriage or outside of marriage. Purity inside of marriage. It's pretty straightforward. The job of a, of a husband and wife is to protect the marriage bed by saying no to all of the things, all of the cultural chatter that is continuing every single moment of every day to push in and tell you deceitful things about one another. And it's to say no to those things and to say yes and only yes to the one person that God has provided for you to be able to be married to and to enjoy and for you to serve. And you need to, if you're married, you need to talk about sex all the time. You need to. And I'll tell you why. Not just because it's like provocative. I don't even care about that. Here's what I care about. You saying no to all the things that are trying to push in on your relationship and you saying yes to the one person who God has given you. Because listen, if, if <laughs> I'll just use the guy for example. The guy decides to let his wife know that he is excited and, and maybe want to, you know, but he's not exactly Rico Suave. She's not exactly picking up what he's throwing down, right? Because this is us is on TV. Um, and she's got, she's got an engagement, right? And so what is he going to do? I mean, he, he feels rejected. He feels whatever. He goes to bed. Who is he going to go talk to? His buddies at the office? You got guys at the gym? Hey, guess what happened to me last night? I got shut down. No, it's not gonna happen. And if a husband and wife don't have open communication to be able to talk about these routinely and regularly, then what eventually, there will be a, break, a breakdown and you'll eventually start the wearing thin, the resistance to say no to all of the things that are pushing in on your relationship. If you want to protect your relationship, you must talk about these things. We must talk about them regularly. We must talk about them routinely. You must talk about them clearly. And you must talk about them kindly because you are serving one another as you're serving Christ. And when you say no to all of the things that God tells you to say no to, and when you say yes to the only one that God has sovereignly designed for you to be with, then it's worship of God. And he's glorified. And you don't even have to sing Amazing Grace. Unless you want to. Because God made you. And he loves you. And he says, I want to guide you in this area so that you can be wise. Let's pray. Father, you have made us and designed us, and we want us to say thank you for all of your good gifts to us. And I just pray for my single friends who are here that they would recognize the value, that they are valued that they are important, that their journey with you is, this, is the backbone for them to be able to honor you with their bodies. And I pray for our marriages, Father, that this would be an area that we would grow in, that we would talk with our spouse about, that we would continue to further to honor you in all of these areas. Father, we lift these things to you as a sacrifice of praise. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.